Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I'm so excited. Cheryl Strayed, welcome to my podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, James. Cheryl, I have first off, let me give you a little let me give a little intro so everyone knows for sure who you are, even though I think many people probably already know who you are. Uh the most obvious thing is uh there was a movie called Wild, which was based on your on your memoir Wild, uh that was out when 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 was the day? It was out like a year ago, right? With Reese Witherspoon. The movie Right. The movie came out a year ago, almost a year ago, and the book was published in March of 2012. So it's been, um, you know, three and a half years or so. That's kind of like a long time for the lifespan of a book. So congratulations on on all the success of that. And and I think it was helped a little bit. I, so people might know you also because Wild was a, a big Oprah pick as well. Like she loved your book. She did. She, she decided to restart her book club for Wild. Yes. It was pretty spectacular. It was a nice bit of news. It's been an interesting, wild ride. And I have to say, I, to, I, I beat Oprah to it because I read Wild before she recommended it. I want to tell you that. <laughs> wow, that's so great. So you read it right when it came out. I read it right when I came out, in part because there's another book you wrote, which I have to confess something to you about. So... For the past um, five years, I've been doing this Q&A on Twitter. So I do it for about an hour every Thursday where people ask me any question and uh, I try to answer within 140 characters. Uh, And often before I do that Q&A, there is one book I use for inspiration to get my my mindset ready to you know, answer the questions and handle all the questions and so on. And the book I use is my favorite book by you. Uh, and I don't know. Sometimes it's insulting when someone says it's a favorite book. I don't know if it's your favorite <laughs> book you wrote, but I love the book "Tiny Beautiful Things: Advice on Love and Life from Dear Sugar." And Dear Sugar was your anonymous name on on the website The Rumpus, where you had an advice column. That's right. You know, I, I'm not insulted by that. I'm, I'm thank you, flattered. So many people say that to me. They they found me through Wild, but then they read Tiny Beautiful Things and they say, you know, that that's that that's their favorite book. It's interesting. I um I really I, I feel like Wild is like the gateway drug 
and yeah. then and then <laughs> you hire try and do the whole thing. You know. To, so did to, you know? Did you read the Dear Sugar column before um, Wild came out? Uh, no, I didn't read. I didn't read anything about you except your books. Right. So so yeah. so I I but but Tiny Beautiful Things was probably the first book I read, and then mm-hmm. um, I was almost resistant to Wild because. I am such like I don't leave my apartment for like five days at a time. So the thought of reading about someone who spent, you know, essentially however long it was, <laughs> nine months out in the wild, uh, just totally was not appealing to me. But right. you wrote so well and so beautifully in tiny beautiful things. I figured I owed myself to this author to read everything she writes, and so I read Wild <laughs> Torch, everything. What did you so? But you see, wild is not only about walking. It's about it's about so much on the inside as well, right? Oh no! And this is what makes you such a great writer. And we're going to talk about that. Believe me. So, if anything, the 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 you know the tip of the iceberg was your you know hiking through whatever that trail was. Uh, <laughs> but the Pacific Crest Trail. Yeah, and and the the rest of the book was about you. And I really felt the rest of the book was about me, which is the sign of a, of a great writer. So, so thank you. I appreciate that. And, but you know, in, and, and the reason I actually want to talk a little about tiny, beautiful things is because you have, I guess last night, uh, we're, 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 I don't know, you know, this will air within the next few days, but, uh, last night or the night before, uh, your book brave enough, uh, just came out your most recent book. And, because I ordered it in advance, I got it at midnight on my Kindle. And by, <laughs> you know, 5 or 6 a.m., I was done reading it. And because uh, it's, a, it's a very fast read, as you know. Yeah, um, it's just a book of quotes, right? It's, it's a very fast read. It's a book of quotes. So let me, be, let me play devil's advocate for a second. When, when someone puts out a book like this, which is a book of quotes, they're, they're, first off, there's two comments. The quotes are all great. So, and I'm going to go over some of them and ask your opinion on some of them in a second. But I sometimes feel the publisher says, oh, my God, Cheryl Strait is, is still hot. It's, we're still on the heels of her movie. Let's squeeze some more money out of, out of her brain <laughs> and put out a book of quotes. Is that what happened here? Well, my publisher, it was their idea. Um, and for this reason, though, here, I, I, because I asked that same question, James, I, was, I definitely thought, huh, it, it seems mortifying, actually, to, to say, Oh, I am so wise. Come read my quotes. And I certainly don't feel that way. But what, what happened is it was my UK publisher who first came up with the idea. And they said uh, that they had noticed all of these memes, which, you know, the kids, that, that, that's the word the, the kids taught me. It's all of these things on the Internet that are like, um, you know, quote, you know, beautifully sort of graphically designed uh, quotes from my various books and talks. And um, they said, look, there's so many of these out there. Uh, why don't we collect them together in a book? And the, I thought about it, and I searched Cheryl Strait quotes on Pinterest and these websites and you know Twitter and Tumblr and all those Instagram, all those places. And I was so surprised to see how many were there. And and I really reflected on the power of quotes in my own life. And that they've been really these they're essentially the useful nuggets of all the books I've read and the stories and poems I've read. And we, we do kind of carry them within us. They, they take on meaning in our own lives um, in ways that sort of go extend beyond the writer's life or the writer's intention. And so I decided that I would um, put this book together really 
drawing on that energy from readers rather than myself. So the way I collected the quotes, it wasn't like I sat there and thought, well, what do I think are the best things I've said or written? And instead I went out there and, and collected the, the things that readers thought were the best things I've said and written well, and brave enough was born. To some extent, and to use the phrase of the kids, as you put it, you crowdsource <laughs> this book. Like they, right, yeah. You know, the crowd basically chose what had meaning to them. And I sense that in the book because these are not like flat quotes. And I've seen authors do those where they do pick out their favorite quotes that they like. But the, these are, are not flat. They, they have meaning and, and wisdom. And I kind of want to go over throughout this interview, I want to go over some of these quotes. And I also still want to get on your, your process of, of writing. But I think like, and the reason why I feel this is more connected to tiny, beautiful things than to wild is because while wild is almost a, a, a me, you know, wild was sort of the memoir form of what torch was kind of like almost a fictional form of, but tiny, beautiful things I felt had, and, and they're all beautiful, but tiny, beautiful things had such compassion from you. Like you read that. And I know you did it anonymously, anonymously as first as a, as a column, but you read some of your answers and you have such compassion for the questioners that it really mm, comes you. through. And it's, it, and it's amazing. And like, although the most popular quote from that book was, um, you know, and you, you've heard it uh, 6,000 times, uh, write like a motherfucker. I thought, right. that, I thought for me, that was like the least of it. Like almost everything you wrote in there was so compassionate to the questioners. Like for instance, you have someone who um, was uh, seeking wisdom. They, they, they felt stuck or, or unsure about their career. And you wrote, uh, you know, don't lament so much about how your career is going to turn out. You don't have a career. You have a life. Do the work, mm -hmm. keep the faith, be true blue. Uh, you're a writer because you're right. Keep writing and quit and quit bitching. Your book has a birthday. You just don't know what it is yet. Like all of these things, all this wisdom, where, you know, with, as you also point out in, I, I forget if it was now Brave Enough or one of your other books, you know, these, this kind of light comes from some period of darkness. And what, mm -hmm. what periods of darkness kind of led you to write these things that, you know, you've written life-changing books. So, so where, where, is your, where is the darkness? Where does it come from? It's such an interesting question because I have, I have lived through a lot of darkness and I've also lived through a lot of lightness. I have a lot of ugliness in my life and a lot of beauty in my life. And I think that that's true for most of us. Um, and as we know, sometimes, sometimes that difficulty and ugliness can make us ugly. And I, I think that, so this question you're asking is essentially, why are you you? How did, how did you become you? And it's the hardest one for me to answer because, of course, I am just me. But what I can tell you is that I, I, pretty, I, I very early on knew that I was going to be a writer. I felt called to be a writer when I was a child, when I learned to read, you know, when I was six. I, I remember feeling that, that language made something inside of me that, that nothing else made. And I wanted to be a maker of that in the world. I wanted to pierce people with the kind of truth and beauty that I felt pierced by when I first began reading. And I knew that part of that for me was, you know, the, the work of being a writer is the work of understanding what it means to be human. 
And anytime you engage with that question, you go to the darkest places and the, and the lightest places. And I could see in my own life, you know, that there were these extreme, I, I have experiences on the extreme end of both, of both, you know, the darkness and the light, the suffering and the joy. And right. that if I was right. going to be, you know, right about that stuff, I was going to need to be willing to go to all of those places. So, 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 so two questions I have. One is okay. at the moment, I don't give a shit about the joy. <laughs> I just want to hear about you want to hear the, darkness. <laughs> the darkness because I do. Yeah. And, and then the second question, the follow-up question to that is, do you need darkness necessarily to be an artist or a writer or an innovator? Mm-hmm. I think that you have to have an understanding of suffering. I think suffering is a pretty big deal. And I uh, was introduced to it pretty early. My, my father was, violent and abusive and in my you know my earliest memories are being um hurt and watching my mother be hurt by my father and um I was also sexually abused by my father's father and those are all things I've written about in time deal things in my other work but you know I I had so I had those experiences early on I have kids now my sister is 10 and 11 and they've never had any experience like that they, 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 they don't know that part of the world. They don't know that part of humanity. And I did know that part from, from the very beginning. Now, fortunately, I also knew other parts. My mother, I had a great mother who loved me well, but we're getting into joy. You want to stay in the darkness. That mother who brought so much joy into my life and who loved me the way that we hope our mothers will, she died when she was 45. And that was, that was the, the, the real, that's when the real suffering in my life began. Because, you know, in my childhood, though, I, witnessed and experienced hard things with my father, I escaped them. With my mother, um, with my mother's death, it was, it, was a, it was a kind of suffering, it was a kind of truth that I would never escape. It would always be true that I didn't have this essential person in my life, and that she had been robbed of her life so young. And so that's when I really, really learned how to, I, I learned about the nature of suffering. And, you know, your question, do you have to have that to be an artist? I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that we, I'm sure there are, I, I certainly can think of writer friends who have had pretty great lives and, and I think that they're beautiful writers. I do think that, you know, even if you haven't experienced suffering firsthand, you have to understand it. You have to have a compassionate heart and a compassionate sense of uh, your fellow humans if you've not experienced it firsthand. Certainly lots of people who suffer are not kind and compassionate. So I don't think that they always go hand in hand. But, you know, it, it is a choice. So, so, you know, you describe in, in Wild and, and other places how your initial suffering maybe led to initially, uh, I don't know how to describe it, bad behavior. But, but yeah. gradually you transformed that bad behavior and you processed it in some way that you, could, you were then able to go on a journey, you know, kind of the classic hero's journey. And then you were able to create these amazing works of art. And how did you... How did you make the choice to process that suffering? Mm. I realized that that it was really up to me. And this is something that you see a lot in tiny beautiful things where I said, I say to somebody, look, I'm I'm sad that you're in this experience, that having this situation, you shouldn't be, um, this shouldn't have happened to you. Any number of terrible things that happened to it. But the fact of the matter is it did, and it does. 
And the deal with life is we have to find a way to live in spite of those things. It's always a choice, and the only person who can save us is ourselves. There are people, obviously, who can help us along the way and love us along the way and, you know, sit there and listen and do therapy with us or, or, or um, be there as a, as a mirror. But in the end, you always have to do the work yourself. It's, it's really um, a kind of, I mean, I never bought into bottle writing and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, a first to the economy. But when it comes to life, when it comes to emotional resilience and survival, that's absolutely what you have to do. That's There's fascinating. No to do it for you. I never heard a metaphor of like trickle down positive emotions related to Reagan's <laughs> trickle down economics. So I'm going to totally steal that and some and not give you credit, by the way. <laughs> but it's totally true, right? I mean, think about it. It's right. I mean, some of the most inspiring people to me, rose up out of impossible circumstances to become great. And the only way they did it is that they did it. They made that choice to do it. And they reached out to every hand that helped them along the way. I'm not saying we do it alone, but in the end, we do it alone. It's, it, you know, it has to begin and end with us. You know, and so for me in my life, I just decided that at a certain point. So, so, so two questions. One is you decided, but there's always a first step. Okay. And what, what, what is the first step to, to, cause, cause at that point when you're at your low, it feels like you, you sort of start off life at the top of a funnel where, you, where it's really wide and you have many choices and you start to go down that funnel as suffering happens until it feels like there's no choices left. So how do you even, when your brain is in that state, how do you realize, oh, I can, I can move back up somehow. I can find hope in my life. What is the first step that you took for that? You're so right, because it is, it is that spiral. You're, when you're down there, so, so low, you're not even thinking correctly, right? You're, you're not thinking straight. You right. don't have a rational interpretation of, of, of your life or the world or other people. And, and, and I was there. I understand that. But um, fortunately, uh, something else intervened. I think, I think that my theory of, of us is that we always have a couple of voices in our head, right? We have the voice of doom and despair and doubt. And we have that, that, that voice that says, uh, you know, I can, I am, I can do this. I'm worried. I, I actually can put one foot in front of the other. And I just decided at one point I, I, when I reached the bottom, I just thought I can't fail so darkly. I can't, this can't be my life. I, and it does kind of go back to my mother. I was loved too well to ruin my life. I was simply loved too well. And I, it was like a revelation. And so then it was, okay, how do I, how do I get myself back? Not just, I didn't need to turn into somebody else. I needed to restore myself to the person I was, to that wildly ambitious girl who wanted to be a writer or to the, to that vibrant person who had sort of went into the world so hungry and ambitious and seeking. And I knew that the way to, to get, back to that was simply to listen to not the voice of doom and despair. I still do that every day. I have that voice of doom and despair in my head right now as we talk, you know, but, but, but to say that is not, that is not the voice that I want to have rule my life. But, but, by the way, that, that voice of doom is, is me. <laughs> That's you. So you have that voice too. I know you do. We all do. And so, I mean, honestly, you do get to, you, you have to say who, who what, what God is going to rule me. And by God, I mean that inner voice. And so I just 
constantly choose to let the kind, generous, good one win as often as possible. Well, and, well, and that, that that's, that's how you get yourself out. That's how you, you know, that's how an alcoholic walks into the first meeting or that's how, uh, you know what I mean? Like whatever, any number of things that we decide to do that are positive instead of negative, it's about that. Well, and, and you know, I can, I can, what you're saying now relates strongly to, uh, you know, tiny, beautiful things, wild and brave enough in that I always sort of feel that like, let's take tiny, beautiful things as an example. There's almost a structure to your answers where you completely find a way to connect and resonate with the questioner's pain. Like you say, like, I'm, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm sorry you're going through that. That sounds awful. You know, that type of, um, you're not immediately providing a solution. You're saying this pain is horrible and you acknowledge that person's pain is horrible. And then the next thing, the next part of the structure, and you could totally correct me if my facetious analysis is wrong, but the next part of the, the structure is uh, not, you're not going to find the solution you want. Like everybody wants a solution, but that's why they're coming to you is because they don't know the solution. So, so for instance, you say to one person, most things will be okay eventually, but not everything will be. And that's kind of like the essence of life. That's right. Yeah. And, and I feel that permeates, like even in wild, you go on this journey. And again, it's like, it's a beautifully structured book because it's, it's almost this natural classic hero's journey of where you're going on the Pacific crest trail. And you're, you're not only going on a trail because you're trying to seek out adventure, but because you're trying to recover from all these horrible things in your life. And you just simply don't know. You don't know if you're going to make it to the end of the trail and you don't know if it's going to solve your problems and you're miserable when you start out to some extent. That's right. And, and I end up not miserable. Yes. No, it's beautiful how it comes out and your experiences throughout. Uh, it is, it is a story with, with, you know, it has an arc. It's a beautiful story. And then with brave enough, I sort of feel like these, this is the, the, the essence of these two books, mostly where the, the pure wisdom comes out. And so I wanted to ask you specifically about some of the quotes, if that's okay. Yeah. And I wanted to say something about what you just said, um, that, that idea of you're, you're so right. I, I began hiking in misery and then I ended and I wasn't miserable in that hike. And to me, this is the most important thing that I wanted to really come through in, in the book is, and nothing, nothing changed about my life. All of the things that were true at the outset of my hike were true at, at the end of my hike. And the only thing that changed was my relationship to the truth. And to me, you ask, you know, how, how is it that you start to make change in your life? And for me, it was to, to begin to accept that what's true is true. Well, to begin okay. to accept that the thing I want the most, like, okay, the thing I wanted the most is my mother to not be dead. I will never get that. I'll never get that. And so to accept that truth instead of rage against it or weep against it or do all those things we do against those truths, to accept that, just to set those things, you know, into my heart and surrender before them was a very healing and transformative experience. So, so that, that's very interesting. So, so, so obviously, like you said, nothing changed from beginning to end of the hike. Of course, you did the hike, so you, you had this faith that you could do something incredibly difficult, so that changed. But... At the same time, the external circumstances of your life were exactly the same. In fact, maybe might have been worse because you took several months off from them. 
but <laughs> but but your but your your mindset changed as to for instance let's let's take truth as a great thing to analyze because it was a truth that your mother was dead and a cause of misery is fighting a fact so facts are are you know whether something's a fact or not i don't know but facts are often true and fighting a fact will lead to misery so that's one layer of truth what's like mm-hmm. what's like one layer below that if that makes any sense yeah no i think that's i think well and what's interesting about that first layer is it's so much harder to do than than at first glance because you know your listeners will think well of course yeah you just the fact is a fact and you we know it to be true but really i think in those some of those deep deep facts like, you know, my wife doesn't love me anymore, or my brother is dead, or, you know, whatever it is, I, I, I was fired from my job, whatever those, it is that causes the suffering, it's hard to accept that. Then beneath that is actually finding beauty, I think, in the fact. Okay, so this fact is true. So how do I make this beautiful? So how, me, how, how do you make your mother's death, how do you make um, your sexual abuse beautiful? How do I make, oh my goodness, see, I have... My, both my mother's death and, and sexual abuse. Well, there I, I wrote my books, and every single day, every single day for years now, I talked to dozens of people. I get dozens of emails that say, you, "Your book saved my life. Thank you." So that's 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 me turning an ugly experience into beauty through my work. You know, and I feel that really powerfully in it, my life. It reminds me of Catherine Harrison's uh, memoir about uh, the kiss. Yeah, the, the, the affair she had with her father, where, it, you know, of course, she got a lot of, not of course, she got a lot of unfair criticism for, for writing that book, almost as if she was writing it for money as opposed to sharing a truth of hers. And part of it was is that she felt if she didn't write it, it was almost like she was becoming complicit with her father's, you know, sort of imaginary uh, uh, affections towards her. And, right. and to some extent, you writing was a way to not become complicit with sort of the horrible things going on in your life, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think that, I really think that there are creative ways to make the worst things about, that happen to us um, into something positive in our lives. Like, and, and that also the two truths can exist alongside each other. I don't, I'm not glad my mom is dead, but she is dead. And I've used, I mean, that has given me something in my life. Like that I've, I've become a better person because of all the things I've learned from her young death. So, so obviously, so, and those two things don't oppose each other. They can sit right alongside each other. Right. And, and obviously the day she died, you weren't going to go out and say, okay, now I'm going to go and find the, the positive side of this. You know, no. you, you had to mourn and that might take years, but could you say, I'm, I'm just, I, I hate to kind of make it almost like a technique, um, this process, but can you say out of any form of suffering, eventually there's going to come a fork in the road where you can choose to, to find the positive outcomes of what happened? I think so. And it's so hard to say that because when I, when I, when I answer your question, I, I think of all the people I have met through my books and, you know, people who have lost a child, for example, and, you know, that seems like there's absolutely no positive in that. There's no light in that. And, and, and so maybe, maybe using that word positive is just sort of overstating it. But, but I do think that you can let the darkest 
lessons, the dark, darkest experiences of your life be your greatest teachers. One of the most interesting things I wrote in my column, The Obliterated Place in Tiny Beautiful Things, it's a letter to a man whose only child was killed by a drunk driver. Uh, the, the son was 22. And he writes to me and says, how can I live with this? How can I be human again? And I, and I say to him what I'm saying to you right now, you, it, it, you know, okay, you love your son so much, you will, suffer, you will suffer enormously. But that love that you have will never be taken from you, that energy that you have for him. And so you have the power to make something of this that is not only sorrow, that is not only grief, that is not only darkness. And so even though all of those things will always exist, your job is to make something else of it too. Right. And, oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, yeah, and, and and I think that that's true. And of course, that's that's that's, that's a deep stuff, right? I think that can be true in, in many kinds of losses. You know, when people have transitions that have to do with their their you know their work or their romantic life, or you know that you do need to say, okay, I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is learn everything I can possibly learn from that experience and bring it forward creatively, positively into that next thing. And that's how we make the bad things that happen to us good and, and, and in some ways, um, you know, far better than we imagined they would be in the moment that they happen. So, so it's very interesting with that case with the, the mother whose, whose child died. Uh, the fact is the child died. And the second fact is kind of one layer deeper is that there's extreme sorrow and this feeling of how or, or this question of how can I get over that sorrow? Like just just simply fighting the sorrow might cause more pain. But then there's this third layer, which might occur months or years later, which is that, and and this is where you got into a deeper truth with me just now, it might not be positive, but something can happen. And that's probably a deeper truth than just facilely saying uh, uh, something positive will happen. Yeah, it's not always so neat that way, you know? And I think that that it it the thing is that if I could purge one phrase from this kind of how how do we heal it would be this sorry my friends it would be this get over get over something um, we we get over you know sort of small things like a breakup or you know but we don't get over things like our child being killed by a drunk driver you know we just don't get over that you, that's a loss that you will carry with you all of your lives. And so what we do is learn to live with it. So how about we always replace that? Oh, you'll get out You'll learn to live with it. And so it's your choice to, to learn to live with it as a burden or a blessing. Okay? Do you carry that, that person you lost forward in your life as a burden or a blessing? And, you know, I'm not religious. I use that word blessing, not, not associated with God, but with that sense of abundance and joy and love well, um, rather than, than loss and darkness. And maybe this is a naive question, but how can you speed up the process where it becomes a blessing rather than a burden, or at least where you have the choice where it could become a blessing rather than a burden? Well, I think you do powerful things for yourself. I, I decided to hike 1,100 miles by myself. It was a, I chose to do that explicitly because I knew that I needed to do something that would put me back in touch with my strengths, that would challenge me. You know, there, we, we used to do rites of passage, you know, passages in our cultures, you know, across, across the world, throughout time, during times of life transition, people have had the opportunity to, to, in a ceremonial way, move from one 
part of life to another. And I think in my hike, I did that for myself. And all of those rites of passage, they're not like going to a spa in Paris and, you know, getting massages every day. They're, they're always deprivation, a physical challenge, um, often solitude, almost always solitude. So I think doing something that's powerful and strong and hard but life-giving is essential. And I think you need to actually seek those out. Like you were asking me earlier, like first you decide that something has to change. And then you do things that will help you change. You put yourself in situations that will allow you to call upon your deepest strengths, your deepest truths. And, and, but the decision itself is very hard. Like, let's say, let's say, um, uh, a wife or a girlfriend breaks up with you or, or a child dies. Like you might not ever even recognize that you have a decision in front of you at some point. Yeah. I mean, I, you mean that people feel like that they just sort of, they just suffer sort of blindly. They're like, this is how, this is how life is now. Yeah, they've suffered so much that, that they, they've forgotten that they have the power to decide to, to change their lives. Yeah, that's despair. That's what despair is. And it's, and it's, and it's wrong. You know, it's like a, it's a way of it's incorrect thinking about your life. And, I, you know, so that's a, a darker, a deeper question. How do, you, how, do you, how do you pull yourself out of despair? Um, because, you know, when I was in my own personal moment um, of this, I mean, I, you, I think you can't, you can't be in your deepest despair when you pull yourself out because I think it's, it's that's when you're basically self-pitying and saying there is no hope and there's no reason for me. Um, I think that you have to wait for that next moment to come. I, I, I guess I don't know that people are in solid despair for years on end, are they? No, I, I don't think so. I think, um, gosh, I forgot the name of the book, but there's a book by, uh, uh, I think it's like a 60s or 70s book by Dr. Claire Weeks that basically we have these up and down cycles, sometimes extreme, and eventually you have to notice that you're in this state of despair and you have to kind of wait it out instead of reacting yeah. to it. Because you won't, because just biologically, your chemicals won't always let you stay in that state of despair. Right. Yeah. And so when you're not in that, when you have like that moment where you can kind of see a little more clearly. Um, do that. You know, the other thing too that I think can, you know, we talked about how change has to come from within. I, I do think that other people can play a really powerful role in that, at, at least um, waking you up to yourself. Um, having friends who say, listen, you, you know, you are, you're, you're, you're going down the wrong path. You're losing it. You, you, you must, um, you must change. Obviously, those people aren't going to do the change for you, but but I think sometimes when when you feel lost, it is a good idea to listen to um, what other people have to say about you. Sometimes other people can see our, see us more clearly than we can see ourselves, and um, and distrust that. But Cheryl, you might be blessed with like really great friends, and not a lot, and not uh, and other people might not be. So 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 you kind of have to set the foundation for despair by making sure you have good friends first. You <laughs> do. I do have great friends. Yeah, and I, I do. How did you? How did you always? Not always, but how did you manage to? Um, I mean, obviously, we always want good friends. It's not like it was a concerted strategy on your part. But what? What do you think is the way to build that kind of trust among the people around you? Mm, I think that being open, having an open heart, being kind. I've always found that that 
well, one of my favorite quotes, actually, that I, is that it isn't in my book, but uh, one of my quotes that carried me through my life is that my mother, um, when I was a really little kid, you know, four or five, maybe going off to school, uh, she, she said to me um, that, you know, I, I think I said, well, what, what do I do if people are mean to me? And she said, zap them back with super love. It's hard to be mean to somebody when they're being loving to you. And I think that that's true. I've always uh, tried to put a, a kind of face of loving kindness into the world in my in my writing, but also in just my life. And I found that I, you know, that that I'm drawn, you know, the people who are who have that kind of loving kindness in their own hearts are drawn to me. Okay, and okay. I've been really lucky in but, love and friendship. But let me ask the basic question to that: If someone's mean to you, you obviously don't want them to shit all over you, right? Well, I, I'm loving to them for that's the first beat, and then and then and then they and then you know you just fade away from them. I mean, I think it's really important to be discerning. Yes. I don't mean. I think sometimes kindness and lovingness and optimism that these are attributes that we sort of associate with, like not being as discerning or intelligent or critical. And I don't, by any stretch, mean that. I mean that to be. It's that old silly, dumb phrase that we've heard over and over. You know, to be to have a friend, you have to be a friend. And so I think I've been, I mean, you asked how I got great friends. I think I've been a good friend to many. And of course, I have also, I also, part of that is, is, is not being friends with the wrong people, not being friends with people who aren't supportive and loving and kind to me and others in the world. I, I, I really strongly believe that because I know from my own suffering, what, what has saved me is bit by bit, because it doesn't happen overnight, but bit by bit, almost pruning a bonsai tree, like getting rid of the branches that are, aren't such good friends or supportive or loving and being, you know, growing the relationship with the people who are loving and supportive and that you could be loving and supportive too. So, yeah, absolutely. No, that's, it's, it's amazing to me when I, you know, it's, I've had the experience of having a friend where I realized, gosh, she just doesn't really even like me. And here we are friends. Like, why are, why am I in this friendship with somebody who's mean to me, who, who criticizes essentially who I am at every step. And we don't need those people in our lives. We don't. Like, I'm, a, as you know, in tiny little things, I'm also a real advocate for setting boundaries with people and, 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 and putting and, and shutting people out of our lives when, uh, when that is really necessary. So I, I think, think a, that that's part of it. I think, I think a key thing, there, no. a key thing there is that you notice, like it's hard sometimes for people to notice, Hey, I don't always feel so good when I'm around this person. Yeah. That's true. I pay attention. So, so <laughs> that's what you know, writers do. You know, part part of um. So, what the advice your mother gave you is related to actually a a, a quote you have in in Brave Enough, which I've outlined. I've basically highlighted, by the way, almost every single page uh, in this book. So, so I don't even know oh, which quote. I don't even know which quotes to begin with. But I'll start with this one. Be about ten times more magnanimous than you believe yourself capable of being. Your life will be a hundred times better for it. And, and a couple of things I like about that quote, one is kind of the mathematical aspect of it, that if you're, if you're 10 times better than you think you could be, you're going to, your life is going to have benefits a hundred times greater. There's this weird, mm-hmm. like orders of 10, uh, uh, <laughs> benefit, which, you know, it's like you're a math major or something. Um, but, but I, I find that to be very true. Yeah, I do too. And, and, and this, and this doesn't just have to do with kindness. I think it has to do with um, generosity and communication. And 
and in deciding not to do, to give in to things like when you feel sort of jealous of somebody, um, you know, to deciding to, to, to not, you know, act out of that, but rather to act out of kindness and friendship. I, I once met this, um, and by communication, I mean, like, when you think something positive about someone, say it. And I can't tell you how, how much this has been, like, a really good thing in my life. You know, I, I met this cowboy um, in Texas, gosh, like, 25 years ago. And um, he walked up to me and he said, um, my, my, he, he told me that his mother told him whenever he sees um, someone that he thinks is beautiful, that he that he should tell her or him. And that. so I thought that that was like a wonderful, a wonderful way to go through life. And so I've done that. Like last night I was just with um, this woman I know sort of casually in my neighborhood. And I looked at her and I said, you're a really wonderful person. I've always loved seeing you. And she just blushed and laughed. And, you know, I could tell she was so taken aback by this simple communication, essentially. I just told her what I was thinking when I saw her. I, I and love, so often I love we that. think that and we don't say it, you know. And, and what happens when we say it? And, and, and the world just sort of slightly changes and it becomes a warmer place. And, and you get that kind of thing back when you do it. So, so. So I have another quote that I want to ask you about in Brave Enough, and I want to play the little bit of devil's advocate. So there's a quote, uh, ask yourself, what is the best I can do? And then do that. And that for me feels a little bit platitude-ish. You know, always do the best you can do. Uh, But it it seems like also there's, you don't just say always do the best you can do. You say, ask yourself. And so again, it, there's this quality that runs through all your work, which is it's 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 really hard to notice that you need to ask yourself what is the best I can do in a situation, as opposed to blindly reacting to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's about taking a breath when I say ask yourself. And and one of the things that I say this in the introduction to the book, I mean, yeah, some of the quotes probably do come across as platitudes, and certainly. Um, most of the quotes I myself don't live up to on, on any given day, but they're what I aspire to. And so when I say, ask yourself, what is the best thing I can do? And then do that. I'm, I'm talking to myself and I'm telling you that this is what I try to do. And it's not so kind of dry. It's not like I can say, okay, okay, I'll do that. But sometimes I can do the best I can do. Well, well, and, and usually it's only when I've stopped and thought about it. Well, I think also, you know, and and again, I didn't mean it as a, a criticism, really, that it sounded platitudish because it, I think there was this extra layer. But I think in general, advice, or what do you think about this? Advice is autobiography. Like, you, nobody really stands on a pedestal and say, here's what, here's what you should do, X, Y, and Z. Like, you're always coming from your own autobiography when you give advice. Yeah, absolutely. I do think, well, I think sometimes people can get high and mighty with advice, but I would but I do think that you're right, um, and which is always too why when when we're really torn about something, I always say you know seek out many sources of advice because you don't ever know who that person who the person is going to be who's going to give you the best advice for any given situation. It could be a stranger in the line at the grocery store, honestly. And you know I we we all get advice from many sources, the people in our lives, the people who write advice columns, the people we meet randomly at parties and wherever. And I think that always seek out many sources if you're really struggling with something because different people will, you're exactly right. What they'll tell you is a story about themselves 
by way of trying to help you. You know, you know, one thing I get from all of your books, and, we, and we, we've already discussed this uh, quite a bit, is again, that there's this, this, you dig really, really deep to find the truth of a situation and then no BS about it. And I feel that's kind of like this, this, it's almost like this river inside of you where your art sort of draws from. But you have a quote in Brave Enough, uh, which I, which I want to understand a little better. You say, art isn't anecdote. It's the consciousness we bring to bear on our lives. And so what, what does that mean to an aspiring artist? What that means is so often, I mean, we all have interesting stories. We all have interesting experiences, losses, victories, adventurous things we've done. And those things make for great conversation. They make for, make for great um, sort of cocktail party fodder and the stories we share with friends. But when you want to use those stories um, to, say, write a book or make a movie or you know, do a painting, when you want to use that, that material in the making of art, um, it demands that we have some consciousness about why that story is meaningful to others. What is the universal uh, strand in that very personal story? I didn't write wild because I thought I was so interesting that because I took this long hike or that I thought I had suffered more than anyone else because my mother died at 45. I wrote wild because I came to understand that I had something to say about what it means to be human in the course of telling those stories. And then, you know, I, I couldn't have ever written that book um, until I did have that thing to say that wasn't just about me. Art is about transcendence. That word transcend, you know, it means to move from one, you know, from something that moves from one realm to the other. And moving from the self to the universal, the collective, uh, is what art is all about. And, and when it isn't about that, that's, you know, that's when art gets criticized. This is why memoir often gets this bad rap about being, you know, navel-gazing or the, the narcissistic form, which I think is totally incorrect. To write a good memoir, you have to be the opposite of a narcissist. You have to be really, really interested in using your life, the deepest parts of your life. Uh, to to illuminate that human condition uh, well, well, question. Well, there's there's this interweaving because so you say art is about transcendence and transcendence is often thought of as some kind of um, internal, almost mystical thing that's happening. But at the same time, you also said earlier you have to do things. You often have to do hard things, and so there's this kind of interweaving between um, doing as opposed to just kind of. Uh, uh, meditating or whatever you have to actually do in order to experience, in order to transcend, in order to explore yeah. and transcend. Yeah. We get all sort of mystical and, and gauzy and, um, sort of, you know, high, high minded, I think about, about spiritual, uh, transformation or all of those sort of things we do that are, um, that have to do with mindfulness or the spirit or the soul. We start talking in soft tones and, um, you know, wearing a lot of feathers and so forth. And I, and I think that, that that's kind of bullshit. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on your podcast. I, I've, I've said bull, bullshit fucking shit on this podcast already. So we're, you're all good. <laughs> um, and, and, of course, if, you know, there's nothing wrong with I mean, I, I, I love all that kind of the trappings of that kind of new age stuff. I, I find that to be very um, lovely in one realm. But I think really... 
I think that's that's you know when 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 you just glom onto the kind of that that look, it's sort of like posing, but as you know, like oh, I'm I'm evolving because I'm doing these things. But really, I think transformation is is really a, a quite uh, mucky, uh, complicated down down in the earth, down low kind of experience of of digging around into the deepest, um, dirtiest parts of ourselves, and um, finding those. Finding those answers and those and those um, you know those truths and those beauties and those sorrows and and, and making sense of them. So and um, yeah, that's it. That's it. So so obviously we 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 we've we've heard great amounts of wisdom from you. So now I just I want to close this off with a with a few just raw biographical questions. Is that okay with you? Yes. So so how does it feel to make a movie with Reese Witherspoon? <laughs> Oh, it's so it was so fun. Reese and I became dear friends through the process, and right immediately as soon as we began talking about her optioning the book for film, um, you know, I had a long talk with her because I wanted to make sure she was a good person and that she wanted to do this for the right reason. And by right reasons, I mean that the story meant something to her and that she saw herself in it and understood, you know, what I was doing. And she promised me from the outset that she uh, would honor the, the book and, and make a movie that, that had that same spirit as the book. And she did. And we, we did become very close over the, the filming, and, and we still are close and continuing to work together. So oh, okay. I love her. The day, like, so you wrote Wild, and it was probably doing okay. But then the day Oprah called... Did you did you hang up the phone and say, "Oh my God, I think my life's going to change"? It was rather extraordinary. So first, I want to say, Wild had already exceeded all of my hopes and dreams for myself. Honestly, uh, it, the, the week it came out, it debuted at number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. It stayed on the list for you know several weeks, and it was happily chugging along, and people were giving it great reviews, and it was it was a writer's dream come true. And then I was I was on my book tour. I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in the hotel room, and my cell phone rang, and it was Oprah. How did she and, know? Like Oprah's like the CIA. Like how did she know what like <laughs> motel she room you were in? Oprah, yeah, Oprah can find anyone. So what happened is she, Full Magazine had had interviewed me um, for you know the, the, the issue that the, the month of Wild came out, and so she called that reporter who had interviewed me and said, "Will you give me Cheryl Strait's?" cell number. So that's, so she just called me direct without any warning. Nobody knew except me and Oprah that she wanted to restart her book club. We had this talk. I, I was shrieking through most of the talk because I would, you know, I would calm down and listen to what she had to say. And then periodically I would just start screaming like, you know, this can't be real. But I knew it was real because I could tell, I mean, it, it was Oprah. I recognized her voice. And I got off the phone, and um, I had to keep it a secret. I can tell my editor and my agent and my husband that this was going to happen. But I had to keep it a secret for about six or seven weeks before it was announced. And I went to her house, and we had this big interview, and we spent the day together. And she, too, has become a friend. And we, she's an extraordinary person. I, I went, and she invited me and my family to her house in uh, Maui and we spent a week, week there and, and just she's the real deal. The thing I love about Oprah is as soon as I met her, I understood how and why she's so successful because this is a woman who has utterly, you know, really, she saved herself and she made her life 
And she keeps making it. She's never stopped being hungry to make her life and to be, you know, to, to ask herself what's the best I can do and then do it. She does that every day. I can see that in her eyes, honestly, the moment I met her. That, that, that's really great. And, that, and, and of course, you do the same thing. I mean, you, you make your life. Like, I'm sure you would be writing books whether or not Oprah had called you that day. Like, you would be on to your next book and so on. That's right. I mean, that's the thing. That's absolutely. And I would say that is the most absolute, the most meaningful part of my success is that I, that, that I wrote my books. It's really fun that all this other stuff happened. Absolutely fun. And it has nothing to do with, with my sense of myself as a successful person. To me, that is it's everything about doing the work. And also, I want to congratulate you. I just read uh, Tiny Beautiful Things is somehow going to be an HBO show. Yes, <laughs> that news just came out. So, as I said, Reese and, and I just loved each other, loved working together. And Laura Dern also, she was in Wild. She played my mom in Wild, the movie. And we, we just hit it off. Uh, and Bruno Papandrea, who's, who's Reese's producing partner. So, we started talking about. What, how, what else we could do to keep working together. And they were huge fans of the Tiny Beautiful Things and the District of Columns. And so, and my husband and I have been tossing around an idea of using it as a, you know, a premise for a TV show. And so we're going to do that. It's just at the development stage right now, very early. But my husband, Brian Lindstrom, and I are writing it together. I, I love the idea of this anonymous um, advice columnist dealing with all these kind of um, interweaving stories of suffering combined with your own story that's happening at the same time. Like it's a, I don't know if that's the the idea of the show, but it sounds like a beautiful idea. It is. It is the idea of the show. So yeah, I'm really. Okay. I'm writing the first script. (laughs) What'd you you say? Uh, I said, okay, I'm going to write the first or second script. Sounds good. Sounds good. Then I don't have to. <laughs> well, well, Sh- Cheryl Strait, I've been such a fan and you've been such an inspiration. I'm almost sad we spoke because now it's going to be harder to steal from you as I've liberally been doing for years. <laughs> but but I re- uh, so Brave Enough just came out. Like I said, I've highlighted every single page in this book. And I'm only, I'm only sorry we only got a chance to talk about two or three of the quotes because I could probably talk about every single page, but people should read it. You're a great writer. This is a great book. People should read all of your content from, from here to eternity. And I'm, <laughs> I'm really grateful you came on my podcast. Oh, I'm grateful. Well, I'm your fan as well. And I thank you for all your really kind and wise words. It was really fun talking to you. Thanks. And I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll eventually talk again. We will. You always meet people twice. Yeah. I would love to meet you in real, real life someday. That's a great quote. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Bye. Thank you. Now that's what we call done. Visit StansberryRadioChooseYourself.com to download our free report called The Choose Yourself Stories and check back daily for more Ask Altucher. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. 
That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.